Well, aside from the insurance industry, claims appear in a variety of contexts in our world today. Uh, That item has already been claimed. Will you be claiming any dependence on your tax return this year? His claim to the throne or office is strong. To claim something in this context means to take it as its rightful owner, to demand it by legal rights, or to assert it to be rightfully one's own. In a similar way, the noun claim means a demand for something due or believed to be due, a right to something, perhaps a title, a privilege, or something in the possession of another. Now, Israel, for hundreds of years, enjoyed the status of being claimed as God's covenant people. The nations, though, Gentiles, were unclaimed, and so existed outside of this privileged group. But for the church at Philadelphia, such a reality, it seems, is reversed. Those previously claimed are now unclaimed, while those previously unclaimed are suddenly claimed. Well, this morning I plan to walk through this letter to the church at Philadelphia, studying it in its original context like all the others. And then we will step back and apply this letter to our context today, letting it address us as it addressed them. So that is my plan for this morning, but before we move any further, friends, let us pray. Lord, thank you for claiming us. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming human, for involving us in your life, welcoming us into your family, inviting us to join your movement, your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we study this letter together. May this letter be addressed to us. May we at least experience it that way this morning. We love you, Jesus, and pray that you would become real to the world through us, and may that become more of a reality this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation 3, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation 3, 7, we'll be reading from the ESV, as always, through verse 13. And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? <clears throat> 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Well, this is the sixth of seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And as you may have noticed, it strongly resembles the second letter to the church at Smyrna in 2 verses 8 through 11. In this letter, we see no criticism or rebuke of the believers addressed, just encouragement for them to endure in faith despite hostility from others. So what I'd like to do now is walk through the passage verse by verse, as I've done with the previous letters, before closing with some words of application for us today. So let's just dive right in then at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, uh, we begin, like all the other letters, with an address. It says, to the angel, the angelos of the church in Philadelphia, write, dot, dot, dot. Now, Philadelphia was a city devoted to Greek culture, uh, which was located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. This is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and about 60 miles east of Smyrna. In antiquity, Philadelphia was sometimes called Little Athens because of all of the temples it had to various Greek and Roman deities. The population in Philadelphia was mixed, and it included people from various neighboring regions and beyond. And one ancient author actually notes that the city was subject to earthquakes, and they were so frequent that cracks would form daily in the city walls, and so not many people actually lived in the city. And of course, our American city, the most populated city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, was named after this ancient city, the city of brotherly love by William Penn. And the city was an important one in the ancient world. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, whose letter to the church at Smyrna I actually discussed a few weeks ago, 
also wrote a letter to the church at Philadelphia. And based on his letter, it seems that conflict with Jews in the area remained even into the early 2nd century A.D. Now, beyond this, during the middle of the 2nd century, so about 150, 160 A.D., the martyrdom of Polycarp, a text I also discussed, mentions that 11 Philadelphian Christians died as martyrs with Polycarp of Smyrna. So to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that's enough by way of background, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this, among all the letters, is the only description of Christ that isn't directly drawn from John's vision in chapter 1. Despite the lack of direct reference, though, I think there is a general connection. In John's initial vision, Christ appeared, remember, in majestic radiance. He was brilliant, shiny, which in biblical literature often suggests holiness and purity, the Holy One. In the introduction to Revelation, so the prologue, Christ is called the faithful witness, which I explained in the sermon to be someone who relentlessly and reliably speaks truth, the true one. Here in Revelation 3, Christ is called the holy one and the true one, which I think connect back to this opening chapter. So the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Isaiah 22, as you heard read, is clearly in the background here, friends. This chapter in the ESV, you can see, is labeled an oracle concerning Jerusalem. And it casts this vision of the capital city being overtaken and destroyed, it seems, by the Babylonians. And part of the vision concerns the overthrow of a certain Shebna, who is said to be the current steward of the household of David in the city. God, in that chapter, promises to hurl away this Shebna, to actually seize firm hold on him, to thrust him from his office, and to replace him with my servant Eliakim. And of Eliakim, it says, I'll just read, I will clothe him with your Shebna's robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he goes on to say, I will place on his, that is Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. End quote. So Eliakim in Isaiah 22 is a kind of foil to Shebna. 
representing the opposite of corruption, unfaithfulness, and poor rule in the southern kingdom. In Revelation 3, 7, the Son of Man is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So he is placed on paradigm with Eliakim, a direct reference. Eliakim, the faithful steward of the household of David, whom God installed after a period of adversity. Okay? Now, keys are mentioned in Scripture in a number of contexts. And when they're mentioned, they open things like the temple, the sanctuary, the kingdom, the underworld even, or the heavens. So to mention keys is a metaphor which connotes access, authority, and the right to enter a significant space. Jesus, the Son of Man here, is the holder, the possessor of the keys. He is the wielder of such authority. Friends, it is by Him that we enter the kingdom, the sanctuary, the heavens, and without Him, apart from Him, no one enters into His glory. Well, then we get this formulaic, I know, statement in verse 8. I know your works. And continuing along the lines of this key or door image, he says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, what exactly is this open door? Or what does this image signify in the letter? Some think it refers to evangelistic activity. So opening a door for the gospel to move in advance. While there are others who think it refers to our entrance into God's kingdom. So opening a door for us to enter God's presence. Now I am not sure that we need to choose just one of these. It seems that the open door image refers to both. And he goes on to say, I know, the middle of verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, based on this clause, the open door seems to at least partially refer to evangelistic witness. Witness. Despite the smallness, the weakness of the church in Philadelphia, which perhaps is a reference to the lack of social or economic influence they had, despite their weakness, they have kept my word, it says, and have not denied my name. Their subtle witness seems to relate to this open-door image, which means that as long as you continue keeping my word and not denying my name, a door for the gospel and a door for those who respond to the gospel will remain open. That is what's being said. 
The beauty here is that even a small, weak, under-resourced congregation like the one at Philadelphia can advance the gospel mission as long as long as their witness endures. Okay? Amen. Well, we then learn a little bit about the details of their situation in verse 9, which reads, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, remember the letter to the church at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's what it says in chapter 2. So it seems that the Jews of Smyrna and the Jews of Philadelphia were treating the local Christians in a similar manner. In Smyrna, remember, the local Jews were publicly labeling Christians as non-Jews and were thus exposing them to the Romans and removing important exemptions from public sacrifices or rituals. Perhaps like the Jews in Smyrna, the Jews in Philadelphia were in league with the Romans there and had little problem accommodating to Roman civic philosophy and belief. It seems, though, that they are hostile toward the Christians who claim to be part of the Jewish religion, but also claim Jesus to be fully God. That is the context. John calls these Jews those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. He seems to mean that if they were true Jews, they would recognize Jesus to be the Messiah and Christians to be fellow members of God's covenant family. The Jews, as I said at the beginning, enjoyed the status God's covenant people for centuries They were thus claimed, you could say, by God himself. However, in time, friends, some of these Jews came to rely on their ethnicity, their circumcision, their adherence to festival traditions and food laws for their inclusion into God's family. And this led them to vehemently exclude others who didn't share in these markers, In doing this, they forfeited their God-given task. They failed in it, which is to shine as a light to the nations, drawing them to God. So the people who were claimed by God historically progressively forfeited that claim. And the people who were unclaimed, those other nations have come to embrace Christ as Messiah and fulfill that light-bearing task, that lampstand-like task, which was entrusted to Israel at the very beginning. Now, this reversal is made explicit 
in a text which is cited here, and that is Isaiah chapter 60. That passage speaks about the future glory of Israel, and it says, as you heard read, foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. Your gates shall be opened continually, day and night they shall not be shut. The sons of those who afflicted you, so the nations that afflicted Israel, they shall come bending low to you, Israel. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. What's striking here is that in Isaiah 60, the nations who oppressed Israel, invading their land, shipping them off to exile, would come bending low and bowing down at their feet in a sign of homage and tribute. But in Revelation 3, it is the Jews who will bow down in homage to the Gentile believers at Philadelphia. I think the irony would have been palpable, unmistakable, and wouldn't have been lost on readers or hearers familiar at all with the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, the letter goes on in verse 10 to say, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So because the Philadelphian Christians have taken seriously Christ's command to endure and maintain faith despite trial, it says that Christ will keep them, preserve them in the hour of trial that is coming on the world. Now there are some who have taken this verse to be a reference to what has been called the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Maybe you've heard of this. Now, I could spend more time than you would like talking about the history of such views, the recent history, the social and political context in which such views arose, and why I frankly think that such views are unbiblical, and actually harmful to the church, and perhaps we can talk about that in the sermon review after. Um, But suffice it to say for this morning that such a view at the very least, at the very least, is an irresponsible interpretation of Revelation 3.10. And I'm going to show you why I think so. Uh, First, let me just remind you that Revelation is not a work of systematic theology that is meant to answer our modern, abstract questions about the timing and progression of events during the last days. That's not what it is. As I have stressed time and again this year, Revelation is a work of pastoral encouragement meant to empower real Christians in the first century, to endure what they were facing with faith and devotion. If this clause, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. If that refers to the rapture of Christians before the great tribulation at the end of days, so thousands of years distant from the first century A.D., friends, that would have done nothing, nothing to comfort the Philadelphians and to empower them toward greater faith in their context then. It would have done nothing. Now, second, the same exact Greek phrase translated keep them from occurs in John 17, 15, which you heard read. This is Christ's high priestly prayer, and he prays for the disciples therein and believers whom God has given to him. And this is what he says. He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from is the exact same phrase you see in Revelation 3. What is being promised then in Revelation 3.10 is not physical removal from the world, but spiritual protection while in the world, preservation in the midst of trial. Now remember that in the martyrdom of Polycarp, so a text written about 60 years after this, we learned that 11 Philadelphian Christians were martyred along with Polycarp. They were not raptured, they were martyred. The Son of Man here is not promising to spare them or to spare us from physical trial, but to protect us spiritually in the midst of such trials. I do not think this verse is responsibly interpreted in its original context if it's taken to refer to some end times rapture. Now, if that's a view you hold dear, perhaps... There are other texts in Scripture that you could deduce, but I would be open to discussing that further. I don't think an idea such as that would have done anything to inspire these first century believers to endure with faith in their present context, and that is what this document was written to do. Okay. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one, no one may seize your crown. In Revelation 2, verse 25, to the church in Thyatira, we read, Only hold fast what you have until I come. The Philadelphian believers are thus urged here to retain and conserve the gospel message, the gospel lifestyle that's been entrusted to them. Now, they are weak, they are small, without influence maybe in the world, but they have a treasure, a treasure, albeit in jars of clay, right? Now, here I can't help but think of Peter and John at the temple in Acts, and they say, silver and gold we do not have, but what we have we give you. And in the same way, I think 
with the Philadelphian Christians, we can say, power and influence we do not have, but what we have, we give you, the gospel, the gospel. We don't have much in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, we have everything, everything. The Philadelphians are urged to hold fast, to hold tightly to this treasure. And if they do so, no one will seize their victory crown. Now, crowns or wreaths like this were awarded to athletes who won contests in the ancient world, uh, but they were also given to officials and generals who performed military and civic feats. And remember the words to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2.10. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. Well, finally, in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The temple was, of course, a vital, vital monument of Jewish identity in the ancient world. And Gentiles were actually prohibited from entering into the inner courts of the temple and could have been punished by death if they did so. John has already said that the Jews who were claimed will now bow at the feet of these Gentile Christians who for years were unclaimed. And here he goes further, suggesting that Gentile believers in Christ such as those here in Philadelphia, will become pillars, vital structural elements in the temple of my God. The Gentiles then, who for centuries couldn't even enter the temple, will never go out of it. And God will write on them His very name, claiming them, as his own. It also says that he will write on them the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And so he connects them and their identity with this brilliant new place, dwelling place, which is pictured in Revelation 21, if we ever get there, as descending from heaven to earth. Lastly, we get verse 13. Uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Spirit of God encourages the believers in Philadelphia to maintain their gospel witness in a hostile environment and to be encouraged by God's divine claim on them. The church at Philadelphia, you could say, has been newly claimed by God Himself. They have been entrusted with the status and mission 
the people of Israel were given at their beginning. As Israel was to be a light to the nations, the church is to shine Christ's light in the world. To be a lampstand, a circle of lampstands, illuminating the Son of Man in the middle. Friends, God, God's claim on us has nothing to do with ethnicity, with family background, or social status. It has everything to do, rather, with heartfelt faith and devotion to Christ. That's it. If you trust in Jesus as your Redeemer, and if you are committed to His kingdom plan, you belong to God. He has claimed you as His very own. As the people of God, we are loved, cherished, and valued by the King of the universe. Yes, yes, yes. But friends, we're also tasked with a grand mission, and that is to shed light upon Christ for all the world to see. We have been claimed by God out of His love and grace, but for a particular purpose. So this morning, I encourage you to celebrate this claimed status, be encouraged by it, but be mobilized as well to carry out the work God has entrusted to us, to us. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to be called yours to be claimed by you, not to just sit tight and still, but to work with you for the salvation of this world. Help us to be tireless in our service, in our obedience, but to rest secure in your grace. Help us to be a lampstand that shines brightly so that the world doesn't see us but it sees you. Be seen, be visible in our midst this morning, please, as we continue to worship you together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.